Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have a double-fisted good martini and two crazy martinis for you to wrap up the work week. So let's dive right in. And uh, Jim... We have good things to say about Bob Costas. You know, when I was a kid, I really liked Bob Costas. And then, I don't know, sometime in the last uh, decade, decade and a half, he decided he thought everybody needed to know his political commentary, most of which leaned to the left. But he was a guest of Jake Tapper's on CNN yesterday, where they were talking about the Women's Tennis Association uh, deciding to suspend all events in China because it is not at all satisfied on how the Chinese government has treated Peng Shui herself or uh, taking seriously at all her allegations that she was raped by a former high-ranking Chinese Communist Party official. And so Bob Costas comes on uh, because Jake Tapper uh, is, is, is thinking, as we were thinking yesterday, how does the WTA come with the, out with this condemning message when the International Olympic Committee on the very same day says, yep, we talked to Peng Shui, everything seems great. Full steam ahead for Beijing 2022 in these Winter Games. And Bob Costas, very direct. He says, yeah, uh, the IOC is corrupt. The IOC is in bed with China. Beijing hosted the Olympics in 2008, Summer Games. They did it in spectacular fashion. But even then, it was apparent to many of us that the IOC was aiding and abetting a problematic regime. And then they go back for the Winter Games in 2022. And in between, they staged the Winter Games in Sochi. It's very troubling, their affinity for authoritarian regimes. So it's pretty clear that in the video uh, interview with Pang uh, a week or so ago, they were just giving China cover. And Jimmy also, surprisingly to some, really took a shot at some more left-leaning athletes by saying they're all too happy and comfortable criticizing what's going on in this country, which they certainly have the right to do. But when it comes to uh, acknowledging obvious atrocities and human rights violations in China, where there's a huge market, uh, somehow it gets a little cloudy. Meanwhile, you've got not just the IOC, you got the NBA and you've got Nike and various individual sports stars in the United States who have significant investments in China, where the sports market is huge. And some of those people are very outspoken, as they have a right to be, and maybe in general, you and I would agree with their viewpoints, very outspoken and sometimes offer sweeping condemnations of their own admittedly imperfect country, the United States. But when it comes to China, perhaps the world's leading human rights abuser, given its size and its its wherewithal, their mom, Good for Bob Costas for pointing this out. We know the IOC has been corrupt for a very long time. It affected the Salt Lake Olympics. That's when Mitt Romney had to kind of come in and and run him at the last second. I think there were just some allegations filed against folks in Rio for bribing Olympic officials to get the summer games there a few years ago. So, I mean, the IOC has been a train wreck for a long time, and this is just the latest nauseating example. Greg, longtime listeners to our podcast will recall that particularly when Bob Costas was anchoring the Sunday night games on NBC, uh, very often his halftime commentary would veer off from scores and highlights of what happened in the game and earlier in the day. And, you know, he'd say, so the Redskins, well, we really shouldn't call them the Redskins. Let's talk about the plight of Native Americans in this country. Or, you know, well, it looks like the Cowboys are sticking with a shotgun offense. But now it's time to talk about sensible gun control, you know, or things like that. I'm going to tell you something that I've never told you, and you get to hear this on air, probably like two years ago. I got an email from someone who claimed to be Bob Costas. 
I don't think it was Bob Costas. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Bob Costas, although I would have told you about it regularly. But it was basically that this guy, this the, either Bob Costas or pseudo Bob Costas felt like you and I were being unfair to him, that he listened to the podcast, he thought we were smart guys, that his positions were reasonable, and that we were being mean and picking on him. I did not reply. This, the, the email address did not come from at NBC Sports or NBC or anything like that. Uh, it, it was a very random sounding one. It seemed like somebody was pulling my leg. But in the small chance that that actually was Bob Costas, and Bob Costas does listen to our podcast, here I have to say, at a boy, Bob Costas. And that's not something I usually say. And look, if this is, I, I wonder upon seeing this, Greg, as I said, this is a pretty, you know, strong words from a guy who's usually pretty even tempered. And this is a guy who anchored the Olympics on NBC for a lot of years. Yeah. You could argue he was the face of the Olympics. I, I can't help but wonder whether, like, the horrible experience that NBC had in Sochi and, you know, we probably remember that god-awful pink eye he got when he was over in Russia. You know, whether this may have altered his perspective on the International Olympic Committee or authoritarian regimes hosting the Olympics or something like that. But Bob Costas is no longer in the position that he's in, and he's free to say whatever he thinks of the International Olympic Committee. And I think we can, you know... I get the feeling Bob Costas probably had a lot to say about these things for a lot of years and didn't feel like he could without causing problems for his employer. So if this is uh, Bob Costas unleashed, welcome. Come out and see, you know, I, I, I couldn't. The interesting thing, by the way, is you notice he, he felt comfortable offering his views to America about gun control or other issues or things like that. But when it actually came to something that might affect, you know, Universal, the parent company of NBC, all of a sudden, they, you know, I didn't hear him, you know, denouncing Vladimir Putin from uh, the anchor desk at the Sochi Winter Olympics or anything like that. But uh, look, I'm glad to hear it. And I do think it is. We talked about this a bit earlier in the week with the, the Women's Tennis Association. It feels like the ground is shifting underneath our feet. That this was a, a really, you know, it, it, some of these, sometimes these, we can point to the genocide of the Uyghurs. We can point to the crackdown in Hong Kong. We can point to the military aggression towards Taiwan. We can point to a lot of reasons why China should not be hosting the Olympics and the entire world should be taking a much firmer, much harder line against Beijing. COVID-19 pandemic seems like another good reason too, by the way. But- Maybe it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Maybe it's that, you know, it's not the it's not that what happened to Peng Shui is by itself the sort of thing that should cause this cascade effect. But maybe this is just too much. This was the last straw. This was more than any other regime could conceivably avert their eyes from, unless your name is Ray Dalio. <laughs> Jim, um, I usually love people standing up to authoritarian regimes. I got to say, I don't necessarily blame Costas, especially since he wasn't on the air for half of the Sochi Olympics for not denouncing Vladimir Putin because he would have had to hire an army of food tasters. And uh, from and from what we know, NBC had plenty to worry about with Matt Lauer in Sochi. So, I mean, it was it was a busy, busy couple of weeks over there for NBC. So uh, might want to cut him a little bit of slack. I said it was a double-fisted good martini. The more I think about this, the second fist isn't really holding a good martini. But the fact that the Washington Post is reporting this, I think, can be uh, twisted into making this the good martini. Uh, Josh Rogan, uh, specifically... He's the one that broke the news that the Biden administration was at least thinking about and planning to do the diplomatic boycott, which the Chinese have now preempted by not inviting us uh, diplomatically. But uh, he also has a story about how the Biden administration isn't nearly as courageous as the WTA or Bob Costas or a lot of other people willing to stand up against China. Uh, this is his Twitter thread exclusive. 
Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman personally told Senator Jeff Merkley the administration wants to slow down and water down the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. The State Department insists it's not lobbying against the bill, but at the same time, one of their top officials is communicating concerns on behalf of the administration privately to the Democratic senator co-sponsor, which is not exactly supporting the bill. Meanwhile, Pelosi is claiming to be a strong supporter of the bill, but even after she brings the House to the floor next week, there's no plan to get it reconciled with the Senate, and Pelosi's office... Uh, says it still might get wrapped into a larger China bill package. So Rogan says this is clear as mud. Uh, He says Pelosi's been a champion for human rights in China for decades. We can probably debate that. But he says there's no good reason to delay this. I believe Rubio was just on the Senate floor saying that it passed the Senate 100 to nothing. Jim, there's not a lot that passes the Senate 100 to nothing, but uh, banning importation of goods made by slave labor uh, seems like a pretty easy one, but uh, somehow the administration is finding a way to take the wrong side here. Yeah, Greg, today's uh, Morning Jolt newsletter is all about the Biden administration and all the different ways in which they want you to believe they're holding a tough line against the, against, uh, the, the regime in Beijing. They keep talking about how they're willing to stand up for America's values, stand up for human rights. But then you keep seeing things like this that indicate it. Look, you're right. The administration has not come out and said, we don't want this legislation to pass. They just don't want it to be as applied as broadly as the supporters in Congress want it to be applied. And oh, by the way, if the House passes one version, the Senate passes another version, and they never really get around to having a conference committee and you know sorting out the differences the law never it never becomes law. It just kind of sits there, just dies. So there certainly doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency around this. And I point to a whole bunch of other things, perhaps the other second most significant one that kind of jumped out at me, uh, also raised by Senator Rubio, um, is that uh, for the position of the uh, chair of the U.S. Export-Import Bank, by the way, I think a couple of my colleagues at National Review would argue, we shouldn't have the U.S. Export-Import Bank. It basically turns out to corporate welfare. Uh, But Biden has nominated Rita Joe Lewis, who, oh, by the way, was currently a strategic advisor to the U.S.-China Heartland Association, which, oh, by the way, is funded by the Chinese Communist Party's United Front Work Department, which is designed to influence foreign policy. So, you know, is she directly a Chinese agent? No, but she works for someone who is effectively a Chinese agent, and and Biden wants to appoint her to this position overseeing the Import-Export Bank. It's a terrible decision. And the third example that's really kind of sticking in my craw you may recall during the uh, debate about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, President Biden would periodically say, what do you think China wants? Huh? You think China wants us to uh, uh, get out? I think they, you know, they, they see this as a quagmire that's, you know, we're, we're bogged down in. They don't want us to leave. Now, they never could really point to any quote from Xi Jinping or, or any other statements. And so as long as that, you know, this kind of assumption on the part of Biden that China you know, wanted us to stay in uh, in Afghanistan for as long as possible. And the last thing they wanted is for us to leave all of our stuff. Well, you probably have heard probably, you know, for the last couple of months, China is now doing everything you can to reach out to the Taliban. And they see a really fruitful potential alliance there. They're expanding their economic ties. They've got much more diplomatic leverage over the Taliban than we do. And oh, by the way, they just announced a whole bunch of plans for state-run Chinese firms to move in and mine roughly $1 trillion worth of lithium deposits in Afghanistan. Does the Chinese government look upset that the U.S. no longer has a presence in Afghanistan? I don't see it. So my, you know, on front after front, even if Biden doesn't want to do this, I think we can debate you know, what's going on in President Biden's mind. I think we can debate if anything's going on in President <laughs> Biden's mind. But you know, the, the net effect of these policy decisions is to strengthen the leverage of China and diminish the leverage of the United States. 
At some point, it stops being what do you what do you intend? What did you want to happen? And the conversation has to shift to what is the result of what you're doing? And on most of these fronts, it's strengthening China and weakening the U.S. Two things I would say here. First of all, I think Biden is getting dangerously close to becoming the Ron Burgundy of uh, of, of Washington. You just put a teleprompter in front of him and he'll pretty much read whatever it is. So, uh, Mr. President, if you see the word San Diego coming up on the uh, on the teleprompter, you might want to pause and make sure. Mr. President, you do not love lamp. <laughs> the other thing I would say is, you know, uh, a couple of things on the Export-Import Bank. And, uh, you know, first of all, as conservatives, we generally think that's a bad idea. Secondly, missed opportunity. If you're going to appoint someone to that job, it really should be Art Vandelay. As Seinfeld fans know, he is the most <laughs> famous and accomplished importer and exporter. So, uh, you know, again, Biden administration picking the wrong people for these critical positions. Uh, in the meantime, Jim, uh, whether you're exporting or importing, you want to import some income. And uh, maybe some gold and silver would be uh, a good way to help that happen. Uh, we have received our uh, silver coins from Universal Coin and Bullion. Uh, they feel great. You can tell they're the genuine article. Uh, and look, if you're looking to diversify that portfolio, for example, the price of silver up 340% since the year 2000. It continues trending higher. Gold's doing well also. And if you want the best and smartest people to help guide you in this process, head over to Universal Coin and Bullion. Universal Coin and Bullion is offering our listeners a special locked-in price of just $30 for a beautiful one-ounce 2021 American Silver Eagle coin, the most popular coin in the world for collectors and investors. This limited offer is available at dealer's cost because Universal Coin wants you to own the first newly designed silver bullion coin since President Reagan signed the Gold Bullion Act in 1985. Call Universal Coin, the leaders of the precious metals industry, at 1-800-UCB-GOLD to get your beautiful U.S. Mint silver coin for only $30. Postage is free and you can rest assured you'll be dealing with the experts. Yeah, the leader of those experts is Dr. Mike Fulgens, the the man who's been named America's gold expert by the U.S. government. He's the 2021 Coin Dealer of the Year. Uh, they also have some rare gold coins that you might be interested in, but this special silver deal is only available using the code Martini. So use that code Martini when you call 800-UCB-GOLD. That's 800-UCB-GOLD. All right, Jim, on to our first crazy martini now. And as we said yesterday, Stacey Abrams is in. She's running for governor of Georgia again in 2022 after losing and not really admitting it in 2018. And that not admitting it is where we're going with this crazy martini because she told Rachel Maddow, after announcing that she's running again, uh, that she acknowledged Brian Kemp quote-unquote won the 2018 governor's election. She never used that terminology, I, I promise you. And uh, she says, I did not challenge the outcome of the election like some recent folks did. But if you uh, do a little research or your memory works well, Jim, uh, you know that that was a very different story than what Stacey Abrams was saying not that long ago. This is from the New York Times question. I saw that recently you said something like you'd won your election, but you just didn't get to have the job. Yes. Is there any fear on your part that using that kind of language fans the same flames that President Trump has fanned about delegitimizing our elections? She says, I see those as very different. Trump is alleging voter fraud, which suggests that people were trying to vote more than once. He offers no empirical evidence. I make my claims based on empirical evidence on a demonstrated pattern of behavior that began with the fact that the person I was dealing with was running the election. I refuse to concede. 
It was largely because I could not prove what had happened, but I knew from the calls that we got that something happened. Now, I cannot say that everybody who tried to cast a ballot would have voted for me, but if you look at the totality of the information, it is sufficient to demonstrate that so many people were disenfranchised and disengaged by the very act of the person who won the election that I feel comfortable now saying I won. My larger point is, look, I won because we transformed the electorate. We turned out people who had never voted. We outmatched every Democrat in Georgia history. But voter suppression is endemic, and it's having a corrosive effect. If we do not resolve this problem, it will harm us all. That doesn't sound like someone who is now saying uh, that she admitted that she lost. No, and I think what makes this one really bothersome is that Stacey Abrams, like she wants to run. We talked about her a bit earlier in the week, but she can't say... Oh, and when I lost the election by 50,000 votes, I accepted my defeat and I, you know, wished the new governor well. She could argue she, she accurately, she did not file a whole bunch of lawsuits. That's basically the difference between her and Donald Trump. That's about it. But certainly in her rhetoric, certainly in her, you know, she did not concede. She did not say Brian Kemp is a legitimate governor. Um, and oh, by the way, the margin in that one was actually in, in the Georgia governor's race in 2018 was actually, you know, larger than it was in a bunch of the Trump states. Now, I thought, you know, a ten, you know fighting over a 10,000 vote margin was kind of ridiculous in both the uh, that I think if you have something in the neighborhood of the uh, Bush versus Gore, 537 votes in Florida, that I could see somebody really saying, hey, wait a minute, I want to recount. I want to see to make sure that. But once you're talking about one percentage point. People think, oh, it's 1%, but you're talking about like tens of thousands of votes. And while voter fraud does occur, it doesn't happen on the scale of tens of thousands of votes. Um, that's what you'd have to call it. And you know, this idea of voter suppression, I mean, how do you prove that somebody who wanted to vote didn't vote because they were you know, afraid of the Republican secretary of the state or, or some kind of stuff like this? Look, the, you know, the idea that uh, you know, Stacey Abrams can now paint herself as you know, the, the epitome of being a good loser, uh, being a respectful participant of the process, of not questioning the legitimacy of elections and all that kind of stuff. Look, up in 2018, it was perfectly legitimate to be a Democrat and say the election was stolen. Hell, Ty McAuliffe was doing this still just a couple of weeks ago, right? It was extremely common to say, to see Democrats insisting the election in Georgia was stolen. And then Trump came along and he said, stop the steal, you know, and, and he all of a sudden he adopted this whole idea, this whole argument of, oh, I'm the real winner. And that, you know, all kinds of nefarious shenanigans or why I'm not being, you know, my number doesn't have, I don't have a higher number of votes than the other guy does. And all of a sudden, you know, but basically Donald Trump applied the Stacey Abrams handbook or playbook on steroids with, you know, geniuses like Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, you know, filing all those lawsuits. Didn't go anywhere, right? They got you know, beat in court time and again. Um, but that's basically the only difference between those two. And now Stacey Abrams wants to pose as the good loser. Stacey Abrams wants to, you know, like, it's ridiculous. And I think that's what gets, is really sticking in my craw about this, is that that refusal to own it. There's an element here that goes well with Fauci refusing to admit in the beginning of the pandemic, he's telling people not to wear masks. Um, it's uh, it's kind of like the, the all the media coverage that early on said that, you know, oh, no, you should go to Chinatown. It's perfectly safe. This is all xenophobia. This is all paranoia. Wuhan, you know, the flu kills more people than this strange new virus out of Wuhan. You know, um, the degree to which the rules of the game, so to speak, the rules of what you can legitimately say change on a dime. And it very often changes based on who you are and what you actually say. You know, just the other day, uh, Joe Biden told this crazy story in which he said that Golda Meir, the former uh, prime minister of Israel, 
had picked him to be her envoy to Egypt for the Suez during the Six Day War. Six Day War was like six years before he actually met her. Like, but he just completely garbled things. Nobody calls him out on this. And if Donald Trump had said it, people, you'd see all kinds of fact checkers rolling into overdrive. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Ron DeSantis said, you know, at some point, those of you who are currently fully vaccinated with two shots, they're going to tell you you're not fully vaccinated. They're going to say that you need a booster to be considered fully vaccinated. And all the threats of losing your job and all that, that's going to come down on you folks, too. And I think it was The Independent, which is a UK publication, said, fact check, false. And now health experts are saying, well, actually, yes, we should you know, change the definition of fully vaccinated to include those who get boosters because now the CDC and FDA are recommending everybody like the death things change and everybody tries to pretend their viewpoint never changed. And it really is this kind of gaslighting Jedi mind trick. You know, you don't need to see my identification uh, type uh, mentality there. And this all goes back where we're now past two years. Hey, happy Friday, everybody. <laughs> oh, wait, we still got another crazy martini. Oh, don't, my God. <laughs> don't hit the bricks just yet, Garrity. Uh, anyway, that's a lot of stressful stuff with all this gaslighting and lying for coming from our government officials and people who want to be government officials like Stacey Abrams. But don't let that stress weigh on your body. Uh, don't let that tension build up in your shoulders and your neck. Get rid of it. Get the Theragun. Because whether you're an elite athlete or someone like me, Theragun can really help. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets to the source of your pain by releasing tension. Using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. Whether you wanna treat your muscle tension from working out or you're trying to recover from an injury, or you're just dealing with the stress of everyday life. There is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. The OLED screen and design make you feel like you're holding something from the future. Just go to their site and check it out. And the Theragun app learns from your behaviors and suggests guided routines. Love the Theragun. As I mentioned earlier in the week, use it the other day. The quads were feeling a little tight. Just a few minutes felt so much better. You can use it on your back, your feet. Uh, it really is just a fantastic way to spot treat uh, your issues. But you can also, if you have some chronic issues, uh, use it. And like Jim said, the app figures it out and, and gives you some guided routines. Fantastic. Theragun is trusted by 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid and elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, hundreds of thousands of customers, and me. So try Theragun for 30 days starting at just $199. Go to therabody.com com slash martini right now and get your gen 4 theragun today that's therabody.com slash martini again therabody.com slash martini all right jim on to our last crazy one and this one's courtesy of the d triple c i believe that's the democratic congressional campaign committee uh who thought they were scoring some political points yesterday but uh, this was what's considered an own goal in politics. They have this little chart that talks about uh, gas prices over time, uh, and it starts at $3.40 a gallon, and I'm guessing that goes back to about uh, November 15th. And then as the graph goes on, it bends down. It looks like it's a considerable drop, but then you look at the uh, vertical axis, and you see just <laughs> how slow uh, the count is here because each little bar is only half a cent. And so from November 15th, Jim, to November 29th, the price of gas in this country dropped down on average two cents. And the DCCC tweets out, 
thanks at Joe Biden. Uh, and of course, uh, turns into uh, everybody making fun of the DCCC, including people who aren't exactly aligned on the right. So when you're this desperate for good economic news, and they certainly didn't get any more today with the uh, uh, far less than expected jobs numbers for the month of November, uh, you try to score some points where you can, and it ends up blowing up in your face. I was going to say, this. somebody observed, this is what happens when no one on your social media team Apparently, is Generation X and fluent in the language of sarcasm, or they're just so desperate for anything resembling good news that they want something like they, the one possibility is they didn't really look too closely at the chart. They just thought it was good news. Uh, apparently, this first came from Matt Iglesias. And Greg, sometime in another episode, we have to talk about all of these folks who used to be on the left, like uh Definitely Iglesias counts as one. Some people might put uh, Andrew Sullivan in those categories, Barry Weiss. Look, we're agreeing with these people a lot these days, and I welcome them, and it's great, but um, let's not fool ourselves about <laughs> these people. These are people who are still generally on the left side of the spectrum, and the day the woke left gets defeat, like folks like Matt Iglesias are going to turn the guns on us immediately. So let's not have any illusions that these people are suddenly um, the leaders of our movement and people who we should be as our, you know, our touchstone on all issues. But anyway, that's a separate conversation. But so Iglesias does it. And probably because Matt Iglesias used to be a much more outspoken liberal progressive, I'll let you decide where you think on the spectrum. He's somewhere on the left side of the spectrum, but he's become a lot more idiosyncratic, a lot more willing to criticize uh, the, the progressive hard left than he used to be. And apparently he's thought this was a good demonstration of the fact that despite the release of the uh, 50 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. No, nothing had really happened. Oh, by the way, I wrote about that in the morning jolt earlier in the week, but nobody noticed that. But anyway, Iglesias puts this, this uh, chart out and it looks like, hey, price, you know, gas prices are coming down. You have to look closely at the chart to say it's come down. The measuring stick of the chart is like tenths of a cent. <laughs> so yes, when you measure by tenths of a cent, two cents decline in about two weeks, that looks like something. But when you look at you know, the overall price of your uh, filling up your tank, it doesn't look like much of anything at all. The other possibility is, but if you talk to the administration, their attitude is always some version of, well, we're, our policies are working terrific. We just have a messaging problem. We're just not communicating how well our policies are working on the border or on gas prices or on food prices or inflation or, or getting people to work and all this kind of stuff. And that's not the case. So the problem is your policies are, are not working. They're generating bad results. But I almost wonder if like this is that mentality, that this is like as long as we have good looking images going out, people will be happy with us. People will think we're doing a good job. I don't think that's a uh, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's the way the world works. And I think people recognize when they're paying a lot more, but they may believe even if they can't win reality, they can win in social media. They can win Twitter for the day. And that, I suspect, is what they were trying to do, Greg. <laughs> yes. And it uh, it imploded spectacularly. So uh, we'll take that, too. Jim, good way to head into the weekend. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thanks, as always, for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, this is Greg Columbus, and I'm here with Dr. Mike Fulgens, the president of Universal Coin and Bullion. He was recently named the 2021 Dealer of the Year by the American Numismatic Association. Mike, let's talk counterfeiting. The Mint has recently released newly designed gold and silver coins that are becoming popular, which means there's a pretty good chance some folks in China or elsewhere will try to counterfeit them. How can consumers protect themselves? 
Well, we do have newly designed gold bullion and silver bullion coins by the U.S. Mint. They redesigned the reverses of the American Gold Eagle and American Silver Eagle. And you need to deal with a reputable dealer, one that's received awards like we have for best dealer publications or dealer of the year by organizations like the American Numismatic Association or the Numismatic Literary Guild. And you want to make sure that that dealer has the expertise and the business sense to check prices and to make sure you get the right quality at the right price. Finding the right dealer is the key in this rising gold and silver market, where I see it increasing 10 to 30% in the next year due to the increasing debt in this country and increasing inflation. It's the right time to buy gold. Dr. Mike Fulgens is recognized as America's gold expert by the U.S. government. Contact Mike and his team of professionals at Universal Coin and Bullion to own your gold and silver coins now. Call 1-800-UCB-GOLD.